Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. If you know anything about Rachel Jackson, chances are you know her best as Andrew Jackson's wife. You might also know that Rachel died in late 1828, just before Andrew assumed the office of president. During Andrew's presidential campaigns in 1824 and 1828, his political enemies attacked Rachel as an adulterer. Legally speaking, she was. In the early 1790s, Rachel and Andrew learned that her first husband, Louis Roberts, had never finalized their divorce. The Jacksons' marriage was seemingly illegitimate. After a court granted Roberts a divorce in 1794 on the basis of Rachel's alleged adultery, Rachel and Andrew married again just to be safe. But when these private events became public years later, Andrew's opponents used them against him. Rachel died from a heart attack in 1828. Andrew attributed her death in part to the public slanders against her. May God Almighty forgive her murderers, Jackson swore at her funeral. I never can. Now what you may not know is that Rachel dwelled deeply on God Almighty. While she labored in his kingdom on earth, she dreamed of the Almighty in his kingdom of heaven. Rachel, you see, was an evangelical Christian, and her fear of God's judgment shaped her life and her relationship with Andrew. On today's episode, Dr. Melissa Gismondi offers us a portrait of a devout woman tormented by the changing world around her. Gismondi is an expert on Rachel Jackson and the early republic. She's also a senior producer on the popular radio program Backstory, which I'm sure is familiar to many of our listeners. Gismondi and I recorded this episode in her office at Backstory, and she kindly walked me through Rachel Jackson's mind. And she gave me a sense of what it means to produce a major radio program and be a public historian. Not only is she a producer on Backstory, she's published pieces on American and Canadian politics and culture in publications such as The Walrus and The New York Times. Now, before we begin, just a quick thanks again to our recent subscribers. We really do appreciate your support. And now, prepare your souls, for we go to meet Rachel Jackson's maker with Melissa Gismondi. Hey, I mean, you've got all this cool stuff. Yes, including uh, my paperweight from the White House in Key West. Harry Truman's. Oh, really? Yeah, did you know that there was one there? No, I did not. You can see, we went to Key West and that was a gift. Someone got me. <laughs> well, that's fancy. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, look at that. The first I can't win- say much else about it because I don't remember much. Oh, it's the first winter White House. Yes, in Key West. Much better pie there, probably. <laughs> Um, well, I thought we would begin, I should note, we're recording this in your office here with the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Virginia Humanities. Oh, have we changed our name? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Maybe we should start that over. <laughs> no, yeah. When did that happen? Um, when did that happen? Before I got here. So that's like, what, uh, eight months ago or so? It happened, I mean, it's been at least a year, I think. Oh, okay. If not more, yeah. They kind of did like a re, new logo, oh, new name. Rebranding effort. Yeah. So Very it's nice. just Virginia Humanities now. All right. So yes. when there's no longer a foundation for the humanities, it's just straight humanities. Virginia Humanities. Um, the other pleasant thing I like about your office is that it's at Boar's Head, which mm-hmm. for those uh, out there who don't know, Boar's Head is a, it's like a, complex, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, with a golf course and a and a, a, um, a hotel and some shops. Mm-hmm. The, the, really, the question I have is, what came first, these facilities 
or the meat and cheese? <laughs> You're asking a vegetarian? <laughs> so the meat's out of the... I have nothing to say about the meat. Cheese, I don't... I think it's... I think the cheese came first. The cheese came first, yeah. yeah. Doesn't it always? <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to think... This is either one heck of a... Um, remarkable product placement where someone just said, you know what, let's name it after. Let's name is it, it not, I mean, this is obviously not anything anyone cares about, but is it? Is that like a real brand or oh, is it yeah. just from here? It's a real brand, yeah. I had no idea. These are the things we don't have in Canada. Right. So it's a real, you can go to Ohio and get Boar's Head. I, so, uh, yes, you can go to Ohio or any, any other state in the <laughs> union yeah, yeah. and get Boar's Head meat and cheese. And it's fantastic. See, I didn't fully understand your question, but now I do. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was just screwing around, but no, there's some... I see it in the store, yeah. but I just thought it was maybe like a local Charlottesville thing. No, it's oh. 100% national. So you're t- you can't get that in Toronto then? Is that what Not you're saying? Not that I've ever seen. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Well, All the Americans are never coming to Toronto again. Exactly. <laughs> no boar's head <laughs> meat no, or cheese. There's no pre- You don't accept a deal with Oscar Mayer, for God's sake, I suppose. Yep. All right, uh, Melissa Gismondi, you uh, work here at the Virginia Humanities mm-hmm. um, here in Charlottesville, Virginia. You are also a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the kind that operates, but uh, the kind that writes history. Mm-hmm. And... You like me are an early Americanist. Um, well, you're more of a midnight. Uh, mid, you're a nineteenth centuryist. Yes. Yes. That's the term we prefer. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, but you, you're here at the Virginia Humanities. What is your official title? I am a producer for Backstory, the okay. podcast. Yeah. Uh, which many of our listeners may be familiar with, and I want to talk about your work as a producer for Backstory here in a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, you you began your life, your academic life, studying Rachel Donaldson Jackson, mm-hmm. who many people might know as Andrew Jackson's wife, but more importantly, was a person in her own right. And what led you to study Auntie Rachel, as my wife calls her? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, I had an incredible uh, advisor and professor when I was doing my undergrad and my master's mm-hmm. at McGill University, Jay Snowball. And he was working on a book about Andrew Jackson. And uh, so I was uh, helping him research for the book. I was learning about Andrew Jackson, who he was, uh, what kind of person he was, his character. And I knew that he had a really close relationship to his wife Mm -hmm. and that he really, uh, from what I could tell, loved her and cared for her, respected her and his own kind of, in his own way. And that kind of got me interested in, well, who is this woman? Mm -hmm. Um, he's a, he's a difficult person to like. Um, he did, you know, he's a very controversial figure. Who is this woman that he has this close relationship with? And close as well, because of course, the, when you learn about Rachel Jackson, the primary thing you learn is, uh, in the 1828 presidential election, which saw Andrew Jackson become president, 
there's uh, what he would call, and his supporters would call, a smear campaign Mm -hmm. by John Quincy Adams, his opponent, and his supporters over the uh, circumstances surrounding which Andrew Jackson and Rachel Jackson married. So that's kind of what you get when you hear about her. But I was interested less so in what actually happened. Uh, Was there any validity to what John Quincy Adams supporters were saying? I was more interested in who is this woman? Mm -hmm. How does she get along temperamentally with Andrew Jackson? What's their relationship like? And it kind of started from there. So a very senior historian who I will not name once told you that the most significant thing about Rachel is that she was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, you don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. What kind of a woman was Rachel? What kind of a person was she? She was... Yeah, I think to say she's crazy kind of brushes her off. She was an incredibly devout woman as she got older. So her first recorded letter that I was able to find is from 1813. She was born in 1787, Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a long period of her life where we don't have any... uh, Sorry, she was born in 1767. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. That makes Um, much more sense. Yes, 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 yes. That's my mistake. Historians aren't good at math. At least this one isn't. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, so by the time you get to know her through her letters, she's incredibly devout. She's Mm -hmm. a very passionate really zealous evangelical. Um, she has temperamentally, at least from what you can tell from her letters, she writes a lot about her suffering and how life is so challenging. Um, it's really difficult. She misses Andrew Jackson a lot. She writes about that. She's not a happy woman. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a very serious woman. Um, she's, I I think she's politically savvy in her own way, but not in a forthright way. Mm -hmm. I think she very much, for her, politics takes away from what is more important, which is uh, God's judgment. What happens to your soul at the end of the day? That those are, that's, politics can be a vehicle Mm -hmm. that you can uh, address that issue, but that to her is, is the biggest thing. And she... One of the things I wrote about in my dissertation is she has a very complicated relationship with uh, indigenous people throughout the region. Oh, really? So this is the uh, Muscogee Creek, the Cherokee, the Shawnee. She, uh, there's reports that her father was killed by an indigenous warrior. They don't know who. Um, her uh, Another one, I believe it's her nephew. Someone else is killed in... Um, Andrew Jackson's, you know, notoriously brutal campaign against the Muscogee Creek Mm -hmm. right before this uh, War of 1812 that kind of feeds into that. Um, And then, of course, you know, Andrew Jackson famously brings home a boy who was orphaned during one of these battles into his home, leaves him with Rachel Jackson for most of the time. So she also has this kind of tense relationship with him from what I can tell so she's yeah there there's a lot she's a complicated mm-hmm. figure and I actually talked to one agent about writing a book and she said to me you know Rachel's not really a likable person <laughs> and that's 100% true yeah. 
But that was also what drew me to her. Sure. Especially, I think, in women's history, often there can be a tendency where we write about women who are inspiring and encouraging mm-hmm. and, and, you know... And I've always been drawn to the women who don't fit that narrative mm-hmm. because they're a part of women's history as well. And they, you know, in Rachel Jackson's case, she might have been, you know, quote unquote crazy to some people, but her husband was one of the most powerful people yeah. in the United States. And he cared about what she said. So that matters. Obviously, then there's something much more to her than simply brushing her off as a negative character or someone who's just a little bit too fervent in their evangelicalism. For me, I think so, yeah. And I think it's about her, you know, the quality of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could have made that case if, you know, they didn't have a close relationship and she was a minor figure. But, I, you know, in my reading of it, she's she's pretty prominent and she matters a lot. So where, do, where does her sense of religiosity come from? Um, you know, you mentioned... That you know, she feel downtrodden when Andrew was away on campaign or or wherever he was challenging people to duels half the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was that something that developed over time, or or by the time that you are reading her letters, where you know you start to see those? You said her her first letters were eighteen thirteen that we that survived. Mm-hmm. Roughly, roughly, I can't recall exactly, but around there. Do yeah. you see, you see her by that point that that her worldview is fully formed and that her sense of the Almighty's wrath is. Mm-hmm. is ever present in her mind or is that something that continues to evolve over the coming years I think it's constantly changing and it's constantly in flux um I I think you know this is a question I think religious historians some take it say well how do we determine where the source of a person's mm-hmm. you know religious uh religious fervor is coming from it's tough some people say with regards to Rachel Jackson, it's kind of atoning for the sin of her being a convicted adulteress, which oh. she was mm-hmm. um, by a Kentucky court for the terms in which she married Andrew Jackson when she was still legally married to someone else. Um, I think it's probably a mixture of lots of things. Um, we know that the early 19th century is this, this kind of second great awakening. There's... Uh, religious feeling and sentiment everywhere. And I think one of the things, you know, in terms of when I was thinking about it with her, I think it's also people are struggling with issues we struggle with of how do you make sense of the world. It's a world, when she was born, there was no American nation. Mm -hmm. When she dies, her husband is president. There's an American republic. There's The republic is vastly bigger than it was before. Lots of things have changed. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways it's one outlet that people turn to to make sense of the world. And for her, you know, I think it's a hard question to answer why was she so kind of passionate about mm-hmm. it in that sense. But she did have very close relationships with some religious figures who I think also kind of like cultivated that feeling in her. And how did she influence Andrew? Uh, so you, you said just a moment ago that he very much relied on her. Uh, you know, we sort of think about Andrew Jackson as, as, you know, as he used to promote himself, the architect of his own fortune. He was his own man. He, you know, he didn't take crap from anybody, and he, but he gave all the crap he could. Um, that was his slogan. Exactly. <laughs> That's what one of the vice presidents. Um, what kind of advice is she giving him? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think they're his relate his dependence on her, and the thing I I think I the term I use is that there's an interdependent relationship. Uh, they're okay. dependent on mm-hmm. each other. Um, they're co people. They're co people. Yeah. Um, I think with her from the beginning, he the world he comes into in Nashville in the late 1780s. I think he moves there. Um, her father's one of the founders of this the settlement of Nashville uh, as we mm-hmm. know it today. So Andrew Jackson's coming in as a young single man who doesn't have connections. Here she is, uh, the daughter, youngest daughter, I believe, if I can recall, of the founder of Nashville and this mm-hmm. prominent land speculator in the region. So from the beginning, there's connections he gets in terms of politics and the law and business. Um, there's, uh, he owned an enslaved woman, Nancy, but she also inherits property, land, and a couple, uh, an enslaved couple. I think their name is George and Maul. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, you know, there, there's that kind of relationship. And as, as he starts to enter politics, it's a tense thing. She doesn't really want him to go into politics. Um, what, would have, what, have, what would have been her preferred future? That's a good question. I mean, she doesn't say... Well, I, I think she really wants him to um, become a, a Presbyterian. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't officially join the church that they set up um, in her region because obviously this is, you know, this is a process of colonizing indigenous land, so there's mm-hmm. not settled churches and sure. where they, you know, it's, it's very kind of fluid. Um, he doesn't actually join that church until after he becomes president. Mm-hmm. So she's very worried. I think she would have liked him to be kind of maybe a religious, you know, leader. I'm not sure. Um, but I, there's, there's letters actually very distinctly when he's, um, in the early 1820s before he, after his first failed run at the presidency, I believe, and before his second, um, she there, you know, she doesn't want him to go to these kind of political parties or these parlor parties that uh, Dolly Madison had notoriously set up, uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, John Quincy Adams' wife Louisa, I think, mm-hmm. is, had had continued. She doesn't want him to be part of that scene. Um, she feels it's you know ungodly and. Uh, and he tries to, I don't know, he goes to some and tries to kind of lie and it's like, oh, sorry, I really had to go. Yeah. And, um, but I think also, you know, the question that I really was interested in exploring was their shared kind of understanding of colonialism mm-hmm. and what was the point and how do you, what's the religious sentiment motivating it? Um, and the way she writes about... Christianity, it very much kind of comes off as an Old Testament style um, religiosity she has where in her mind, um, you know, a lot of these kind of indigenous nations in the region who are defending their ancestral homelands, Mm -hmm. you know, they're they're rising up against the kind of God-fearing settlers. Um, so she sees it as sort of the the godly people against the heathens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, 
one of the things I was thinking about when I kind of wrote that and thought about that was that in early American, what early American historians will often say Mm -hmm. is that this is a period where uh, in, there's a kind of surge of indigenous spirituality with someone like um, Tecumseh and and these kind of figures. But I don't think often enough, they would consider, well, where's religion and how is it motivating the violence of white settlers? Mm-hmm. Because these are incredibly religious people as well. Sure. Um, so that was kind of one of the questions I was interested in exploring. And it, there is kind of a... Her and Andrew Jackson will, will write about the religious understandings of his really violent campaigns against... Um, indigenous nations in the region and he'll only write about them in religious kind of understandings to her not so much to other people and oh, i think it's really? he's kind of speaking her language mm-hmm. i guess the question then, then is does he believe what he's saying when he's writing that to her or is that is that jackson the politician operating on his own wife even yeah that's that's a good question i think he it's hard to know yeah um I think he probably also is trying to uh, make sense of what he's doing as well. Mm -hmm. After one particularly brutal uh, campaign, he's kind of writes to Rachel on it. He's, he feels like this strange remorse. It's almost like he did something really, you know, yeah. there's, he unleashed this incredible violence and then he, you know, kind of steps. And whether or not that that's genuine, we don't know. But um, I think he, he wanted to be a godly man, mm-hmm. um, whether that was his top priority or whether he understood what it means to be a godly man in the same way she did is, you know, maybe a different thing. Yeah. That's book two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after you, um, after you finished that project, and it, now correct me if I'm wrong, while you were still in school, were you, were you moonlighting for Backstory or you were working with them in some capacity? Yeah, so I started um, doing research for them to help them come up mm-hmm. with research, yeah. <laughs> come up with ideas. Idea. Yeah. Well, research. Yeah. They would mostly generate the ideas, yeah. and I would, yeah, come up with research preps for them. Preps. I see. Mm-hmm. And so um, after you graduated, that kind of translated into. Well, no, there was a sort of intermediary stage, right? I, I get your biography confused because you you've been back and forth between Jefferson's Virginia and the Canadians who refused to join us in the res- revolution. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yes, so while I was still writing my dissertation, I got introduced to the world of public radio and podcasting Mm -hmm. because, of course, this was when Backstory was still, it was also a public radio show at this time. Oh, still on uh, NPR or Radio IQ or something. Yeah, a whole bunch of, something like over 100 uh, NPR stations throughout the country. So I started to learn a little bit about radio, I was also writing freelance pieces and op-eds, mm-hmm. and I started to get introduced to the world of media and journalism. And um, so then I kind of started to segue full-time mm-hmm. into that. And how did you, how does one find their way into you know, freelancing for 
let's see, you've written for The Walrus. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written, you've had a piece in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. How does how does that work? I mean, how do you, do you write up an editor and say, hey, I've got an idea? Or how, what, you know, what is the pitch process like? It's a good question. You have to uh, get used to people not responding to your emails. Oh. <laughs> uh, Critic, you know, there's lots of criticism involved. I think in mm-hmm. some ways, the grad school is great training for being a writer because yeah. that that happens a lot in grad school. Always constructive criticism. Sure. But. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> um, but it's a good place to harden your soul. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I mean, most of the relationships I started to develop, develop with editors mm-hmm. kind of happened, you know randomly through um with the walrus i'd applied to something and then i kind of got connected to them and got the chance to write and submit ideas um and from there just kind of it starts to snowball Mm -hmm. and more people you build up a portfolio and then you know you always i think everything that i most of the things that i write are through the lens like my lens which is kind of historically informed but Mm -hmm. is not always just about history sure so i think for a good pitch for me it's um being able to think about is this timely for people Mm. because there's so much there's so many things that are taking that can grab people's attention Mm -hmm. right we can all just watch netflix or we can listen to podcasts or we can go on twitter we can do whatever so it has to it has to have that kind of part of your pitch that's that this is why people are going to want to read this yeah. and right now and right now right and yeah. so you can't sort of sit on it for five months and say oh maybe I'll come back yes. to that it's done so to give you a good example I wrote something recently about um, the director Robert Eggers who mm. has a new movie called The Lighthouse with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And he, I'd seen his other movie called The Witch, and he kind of does these historically informed horror thriller movies. Mm-hmm. And I, this was, and I was very interested in how he was using history and in horror films. Oh, I see. Um, and so I wrote up a pitch for the Washington Post, but that had to land right around Halloween. It couldn't have been, you know, a couple right. days late because. Would not have worked. Who's gonna? You know, the the attention is yeah. not as it's not there. In the Would same not have way. been a Thanksgiving type <laughs> no, story. No, you don't often think of lighthouse keepers and Thanksgiving. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so obviously, writing a dissertation is different than writing an op-ed piece or something in Walpo. Uh, how did you? How was the process of adjusting your writing style to accommodate a more public-facing audience than you might have otherwise found in writing a book about Rachel Jackson? Mm. No, that's a good question. I think um, the way I was taught to write history, which is probably not the way everyone's taught to write Mm -hmm. history, was to be very clear and concise. Um, Always to kind of think clearly, which is a hard thing for a writer because I think if you ask yourself, what do I want to say? Sometimes more more often the answer is I don't know. Right. And then you have to think, well, what am I even, well, then I got to think up what I'm writing <laughs> as opposed to just kind of starting to write and, you know, ramble. I'll see where it goes. Exactly. So that's, that's hard. So I, I'd had that training, which is, you know, I didn't go to journalism school, but from what I gather, that's, 
the advice of, Mm -hmm. you know, good journalists and good writers. Um, I think privileging the story, having a story, was something I'd done in my dissertation because when I'd written it, I'd wanted the whole, you know, originally I just kind of conceived of it as a biography of Rachel Jackson, so there was a natural story there. Um, I think the story is important. Um, I think the big thing is not, you have to change a little bit. You have to explain things that you might not normally explain. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, like a term like, you know, manifest destiny, which is something historians would know what that means and what's encompassed in that. But especially for some of the audiences I write for, which is a Canadian audience as well, a lot of Canadians don't know what that means in mm-hmm. American history. Or if I'm writing about something related to Canada for Americans, or or just, I think oftentimes there's people don't, they'll hear the phrase, but they don't really know what it means or how you're using it. Sure. So I think explaining yourself a bit more fully. So in a lot of ways you have to be conscious of cultural literacy. Mm-hmm. Especially in your case, since you're writing for audiences on both sides of the northern border, mm-hmm. um, you're thinking about that constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it can be, I was actually thinking about this in terms of I was originally trying to think about something that would appeal to, to both audiences. And mm-hmm. I found it, it was, it was difficult because I found there were, there were things I would have had to explain for an American audience that w- would have sounded weird if you were explaining them to a Canadian uh, one. Yeah. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Um, so that, I mean, that's a very particular example for me. Um, but I think explaining yourself, um, and having, and again, having the ideas of why should, why is this person going to read this right now when Mm -hmm. they're drinking their morning coffee? Yeah. Because you have to pull them in, I think, a bit more than you do if you're writing for other academics who are interested in what you're contributing to the, uh... The, the field of it, right? Yeah, and, the, and that way there's a na- there's a natural audience in an academic setting, but in a public setting, you're you're fighting for attention, as you rightly say. Yeah, no, exactly. I think you're probably not. You know, people who are inter- I'm interested. You know, I write about like history and culture and politics and gender. I think those people, I already maybe have their attention, mm-hmm. but you have to. Yeah, you have to go that step further and keep cultivating that relationship. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully. Um, before we turn to the to the backstory aspect, because I want to ask you, like, what does it take to to take an i you know a, a radio episode from idea to production? But um, I was speaking of Canadian U.S. relations. Uh, you had written a very interesting piece recently. You know, this was the New York Times, the the Trudeau piece mm-hmm. about Americans' love affair with Prime Minister Trudeau, mm-hmm. and how in recent weeks, months, as uh, the prime minister's um, standing amongst uh, not only his own party, but Canadians has dropped, I guess you might say precipitously, even though he did win re-election recently, you know, he had the scandal with the the blackface scandal, you know, he's had Mm -hmm. charges of corruption for ordering his attorney general to stand down over investigation of of an energy company. That sounds familiar (laughs) uh, in American politics. And one of the points he made in this piece was that, uh, congratulations, Americans, you guys are all now realizing what we Canadians have known for a long time. And so why is it that, that Americans had such a love affair with 
mm. with the prime minister that and it took us a long time to see um, as you said what you what you all already knew mm. I think well I mean there's some people in Canada who are they they still you know love him mm-hmm. um, I think the challenge he's had is um, there's there's he's there's lots of people on the right wing, right spectrum, mm-hmm. who don't like him, and there's lots of people to the left of his party that are frustrated too. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of occupying that center, um, which is tough. I think in terms of Americans, you know, it was really interesting because I had never seen a story about Canada get so much attention in the American press as the blackface just right um i think part of that is time magazine broke it Mm -hmm. um but i if i had to guess and it's a good question i think it has to do with the kind of cult of celebrity Mm. and he is a young you know good looking guy who's been in vogue magazine who's been on the cover of rolling stone he especially, you know, when he was first elected in 2015, and this is something I've written about, he had this kind of, people called it a bromance with uh, President Barack Obama at the uh-huh. time. And then after the 2016 presidential election, he, I think very much, it was such a polar opposite sure. between Donald Trump's persona and Justin Trudeau's persona. And so I think American liberals who were frustrated with Trump and kind of the status of American politics here Mm -hmm. saw him as this kind of like oh Justin Trudeau he's the guy (laughs) ray of sunshine I think the cut you know one of the the cover I think of the Rolling Stone uh, article was why can't he be our president Mm -hmm. oh I think you're right right I think now some Canadians be like you can have him (laughs) (laughs) um so I think it has to do with that you Mm -hmm. know it's um there's in politics, it's it seems, you know, and it's not just in the U.S., it's in Canada, too. It's in the U.K. Sure. You have that kind of celebrity persona. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more attention surrounding you. You know, Canada's prime minister before him had a very different kind of public image. Oh, Stephen Harper. Yes, yeah. So it was, you know, I... I, you can't really picture him in Vogue magazine. <laughs> oh, you can't at all. <laughs> but you can, you know, but Justin Trudeau with his wife, yeah. and, who also used to be a TV presenter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just trying to imagine Prime Minister Harper in, in Vogue. The color of Rolling <laughs> yeah. Stone or something, yeah. So you were a, your full title is producer here at Backstory. Mm-hmm. What does it take to produce an episode? That's a good question. It starts with um, an idea Mm -hmm. from a producer, from a host, from a listener. Uh, Often that idea, not all the time, but often that idea, we want it to be topical for the moment uh, that it's going to be, that it's going to come out. Um, From there, there's a lot of research that goes into it. We still have a part-time researcher who helps us out. Um, there is, uh, story ideas, the producers come together and we talk about different stories that we want to feature. Um, and then, uh, there's script writing and recording and editing and mixing. 
it's a long process from start to finish mm-hmm. um, with many hands on deck. Uh, and it, I think it's, you know, we're always, but I think also it's, it's partially always kind of having our antennas up and thinking about what could be a good mm-hmm. backstory story or episode. So what's the average time between the idea in the writer's room or the producer's room to mm-hmm. putting it out through your podcast? It varies. I think usually it's maybe eight weeks or so. Okay. Sometimes. So uh, when in September, when the uh, Nancy Pelosi announced that she was launching mm-hmm. the in inquiry into impeaching mm-hmm. Donald Trump. The, everyone was talking about it. It felt like a really historic moment. So we actually decided to jump in the studio with some of our hosts and we produced an episode in the matter of a couple of days. Wow. Where they the hosts kind of talked about, you know, we got some research and they had they talked about brought their historical knowledge to this moment. Mm-hmm. And talked about if it felt historically unprecedented. What was so? Th- it can be very quick mm-hmm. because we wanted to get that out as soon as possible because sure. it felt like it was something we could contribute that other media outlets weren't necessarily mm-hmm. doing. But that's rare. Typically, it's several weeks. Mm-hmm. So we, we, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Joanne Freeman, who was on the podcast recently, is one of the co-hosts of Backstory. Um, so what's what's coming down the pike? So this uh, we have a episode on the history of Sesame Street coming out. What's it brought to you by? <laughs> it's brought to you by the letter B. <laughs> <laughs> um, with uh, I can't give it away, but it's a special furry friend who's on the show. <gasps> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so that's coming out. Um, we have. Um, I have a big board up here so I can see what's coming up. Uh, We're doing, um, this show is kind of near and dear to my heart. We're doing a roundtable discussion on historical fiction. And each of our hosts is bringing um, a particular story, a novel, a film Mm -hmm. that's that they appreciate and, and are interested in and how it engages with history. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an episode on what the Constitution means to people today. Oh. Um, of course, all of these, the nature of working on a show is anything is kind of subject to change. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you wipe the slate clean because something big happened and right. you push the show back because there's an impeachment inquiry or a guest falls through. But these are sorts of, it gives you, I think, a variety of some of the ideas that we've been thinking about. Well, certainly the, the issue of the Constitution is awfully timely, but we probably could use a little bit of Sesame Street in our lives. So. It's the 50th anniversary. It is the 50th anniversary, yeah. that's right. So it's an honor of that. So are you all going to sing, can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? <laughs> we, we tried, it didn't work didn't out. Didn't work out. No, no. no. We're not, we don't have a lot of songs on the show. Yeah. Maybe we need more. Well, you know, maybe, um, I don't know, get some Elmo or some Oscar the Grouch or something like that. The big uh, names. The big yeah. names, yeah, exactly. The <laughs> A-list talent. <laughs> so what's next for you? Because um, you were recently named, now, uh, uh, correct me if I get this title wrong, but like one of 
Canada's rising stars. Um, yes. What, what does that mean to be a rising star? And <laughs> and, and what um, what what, is, what what did you you won a big prize? I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Tell the people what you won. Well, the Writers Trust of Canada named me. Uh, they have a new program which they started this year, where they identify five rising stars mm-hmm. and um, uh, established Canadian writer picks a young rising star. So I was chosen by um, a historian named Charlotte Gray, mm-hmm. who writes lots of wonderful books about Canadian history. And uh, I was chosen by her as one of the five rising stars. Did you know this was going to happen or it was, it was just a complete surprise? The best you the best prize you could ever get that you didn't have to apply for. Wow. I just got an email. It was on April Fool's Day, and a family friend said, are you, are you sure it's real? Yeah. <laughs> are you sure it's not a joke? Um, that's I was April Fool's Day when I got the email notice about it. Um, do, do they have April Fool's in Canada? We do. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. So that would not have been a cross-cultural mix-up. No, we have it, yeah. But yeah. it was real. It was real. And so what did that mean? You got to go spend, you had to go to a writer's retreat in Banff, is that right? I was at a writer's retreat. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the biggest things it has meant for me mm-hmm. is um, recognition as a writer in a really kind of incredible way. Sure. Um, you know, you write things and you publish them, and I always do it because I love writing and I love the process um but to actually have you know to to get feedback that people are reading it and that they like it that's you know that's incredible um so that and it's it's connected me to a community of writers Mm -hmm. that I probably never would have met or would wouldn't have met for you know a long time so and where do you see yourself going from here What's coming down the pipeline for you personally? We've got Sesame Street coming on Backstory. Sesame but. Street. Um, I'm always working on new pitches, mm-hmm. um, new, I've, new pieces, and new essays. Um, so I'm trying, I'm working on um, developing a book and writing a book about the, which kind of feeds off of the article we were talking about earlier about Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm about the relationship between Canadian and American culture and identity and how we relate to each other and see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, will, will that book take, take us back to the, you know, the, the, the American secession, for lack of a better term, when, when we were once one British people, we became Americans and Canadians? Yes, it will. It'll go. It's, it's less of a... It's still kind of in early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of just w- what I'm interested in writing about. Um, it, I think part of it and part of what I've written about is also the profound similarities uh, between Canada and the U.S. in terms of um, both countries are formed as settler colonies on indigenous lands. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Um, so I think you could say it can even you can even start that. Earlier. Earlier, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I think we all look forward to seeing that on the bookshelves <laughs> sometime soon. Hopefully. 
a couple of years, I would imagine, but mm-hmm. you write pretty quickly, so probably like next week. Melissa, <laughs> <Next laughs> <week. laughs> um, thank you very much. This has been a, a real treat uh, for me, especially since I haven't seen you for about two years now. So mm-hmm. thank I'm, you. I'm glad we finally got got to get together, and then um, we look forward to seeing where you go next. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. You can find more information on our webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.